0: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
1: Welcome to the Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. Today I'm going to break my rule a little bit, and then, staffing another physician, I'm going to have Mr. Michael Devine. He's a licensed counselor, and we're going to be talking about mental health and the problems within the industry. I think you'll find it very informative. Certainly, at the end, with some really interesting answers to questions of how things have changed just in his practice and that he's noticed over the last decade. Uh, but a little bit of housekeeping to take care of first. First, a shout out to my new patron, Eric Roberts, who's in medical school. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been fun connecting with you. Next, I'd like to thank each and every one of you who listens to the show and shares this with your friends and colleagues and family members. Um, this last week, maybe it was even a little earlier, but uh, I think it's sometime before I release episode 38, across the 25,000 download mark, um, I think when I launched the podcast less than a year ago, back in, I think it was April, I don't know what exactly what I had thought of target for goals, but I, I think I'd hoped for about 100 downloads per episode when I looked at the average uh, number of downloads that people receive. I'm not anyone famous, and so I certainly didn't have name recognition uh, to help boost the the start of the program or the ability to get the high powered guests that lots of these shows get. So it's really been through, through you and uh, hopefully we've formed a great relationship. Uh, I've, it's been meant a lot to me. This show has allowed me the opportunity to express myself in ways I didn't expect, to hopefully advocate for physicians and for patients and to help people learn about what's going on. So thank you again. And please, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Of course, it's free please recommend it and continue sharing with your friends and the uh, growth of the show is clearly dependent totally on you and so I really appreciate that a ton. I can't tell you how much it means to know that people are listening and so that's pretty cool and I would also recommend that if you've ever thought about doing your own podcast go for it and try and add a unique voice to the airwaves. There's probably something that you are very knowledgeable about or maybe you have some opinions maybe you're funny I don't know but anyway I think it's an opportunity to start a conversation, and that's kind of what we're looking at for this show, and certainly with this episode today, where I talk to Michael Devine. Uh, these are two sort of parallel, uh, sometimes intersecting fields. Mental health is obviously always present within the healthcare industry in general, but it's always seen as sort of its own thing on uh, many levels. And so it's an opportunity for us to get together, I guess, and offer insights into how each of our industries works. And it's always funny saying industry because, you know, we don't produce anything. <laughs> there no We don't put, put together cars or televisions. Uh, but it is an industry, right? It's when you look at large healthcare systems and the mental health system is its own thing. And they obviously are symbiotic and they can help and hurt each other. And so today's just a conversation between us where we try and understand a little bit more about those guys in mental health. Show notes, They'll be found at theparadox.com slash 039 There you can also find a link to my appearance on Michael's show, the Grey Matters Radio podcast, which was a couple weeks ago. I think it's just a general discussion about healthcare, the problems, which many of them we've discussed today. It's an interesting discussion because not only is Michael coming from the counseling background, but his friend is sort of the everyday guy who is the one dealing with the system, he's your sort of your patient. And his father was in purchasing with, through for hospitals, and so he has an interesting perspective as far as how the purchasing process works, the, uh, the motivations from hospitals and large systems to try and run things efficiently within a large, healthier system. But anyway, without further ado, Mr. Michael Devine, in a discussion about mental health. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my friend Michael Devine. He's a licensed professional counselor, family business consultant with a bachelor's in psychology from Otterbein College, and a master's degree in psychology from the University of North Texas. I was on Michael's show about three weeks ago, I think, uh, Gray Matters Radio, which is a podcast, and he talks about the mind, of course, as a counselor. He's also the author of a book, Failure to Launch, Guidance Clinicians to Launch the Long-Dependent Adult Child. He's also a co-host of the Voice Radio Center the Radical Center, excuse me, on Talk 1370. He spent the majority of his career in private practice working with families, teens, and young adults with a variety of issues, such as addiction, failure to launch, anxiety, career indecision, autism, and depression, as well as helping guide family-owned businesses to continued and long-term success. So, Michael, thank you so much for returning the favor and coming on my show.
0: Ah, thanks for having me, man. I'm real, uh, real excited to be on yours.
1: I thought it was very magnanimous of me to bring you on since you're in Ohio and I'm in Michigan, but... <laughs> I just was well, uh, could be perfect. Yeah. Know. Well, I mean, you know, we're just both Midwestern. It's interesting. My wife is from Iowa. And when we we met in medical school, not University of Iowa. And uh, I would explain to her that, you know, I'm from the Midwest. And she looked at me like I had two heads. And she's like, Michigan's not the Midwest. And uh, her definition was anything west of the Mississippi, I think. <laughs> and so I'd never thought of it before. But I'm like, I don't know what we are, but we're certainly not the east. So I don't know.
0: I remember, like, in school, like, they're trying to explain, like, why the Midwest is the Midwest, and it, honestly, I think I understood neuroanatomy better than I understood why the Midwest <laughs> is the Midwest. I really have no clue still.
1: It's also really gigantic, right? If, if you use my definition, it's, like, half the states. <laughs> it's from, <laughs> from Kentucky all the way over out to, like, maybe the edge of Colorado, and then you sort of you, you hit the West, I guess. <laughs> uh, so today, we're going to talk about um, mental health, which is what you live in most days, uh, and it's a gigantic topic. I listened to your, your show a couple weeks ago where I think you, oh, I guess you, you, uh, you exposed some of the underside of the rock of mental health counseling uh, and, and to talk about the industry or the, the profession, I guess. It's what I do on the time on this show talking about healthcare. We We talk about all the warts. Uh, we, we often have talk about the solutions to lots of problems as well. But we haven't talked about mental health outside of the epidemic of physician suicide, which we're not going to address today. But um, why don't you talk to me and just tell me a little bit what you think mental health is? I mean, it's a broad term. So, what does it mean to you?
0: That's uh, actually a good question. I, I think you must kind of have to break it down um, into almost subsets of populations that you're working with because you have the outpatient providers like myself who are doing traditional counseling, whether it be, you know, working with families, uh, working with individuals, um, even getting into more of like the life career coaching um, element. And so it's more of the, like my background is in counseling psychology, which is uh, more normal ends of the spectrum of, of mental health issues where really it's more just about normal people going through difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, then we start getting more into like the clinical um, kind of realm where that can be on an outpatient uh, basis. But um, I think sometimes the uh, the, the modality and, and, and the ways in which you work are a little bit different. But once again, mostly in that outpatient kind of basis. Um, but then you start kind of getting into more of the severe uh, mental illness um, or the chronic and, and long term. And I think This is where we're having, I think, most of the problems with mental illness and mental health uh, treatment. So we have like the chemical dependency treatment. So uh, um, addiction, which can be the realm of intense and outpatient programs. Basically, they go three days a week for, you know, like nine to five. Mm -hmm. We have um, acute inpatient where a lot of times it's like three to five day detox, three to five day um, psyche evals. Um, We have residential treatment, which goes anywhere from 30 to 90 days. Um, and then we even have what we call like the aftercare programs, where transitional living, sober living, um, and then of course we have all stops in between with medication management and uh, testing, and so um, that that that's a good, I guess, broad range of mm-hmm. the what we would consider mental health treatment. And so,
1: you know, when you hear people talking in the media, um, you know, about mental health, I think oftentimes they're talking about. The inpatient portion, or the uh, the person who comes in who, with untreated psychosis, or schizophrenia, or depression, or severe chemical dependency, causing all sorts of problems uh, in their life, and they're not talking about the, I guess, the outpatient that you're that what do you deal with, I suppose. Um, and as bad as and as messed up as healthcare is, pretty much everyone assume agrees that mental health is even worse. <laughs> that's that's where when it comes to the lack of beds, the lack of psychiatrists, the lack of the intensive treatment available for people, that it, mental health is where the real crisis is. I talk to any of my friends who are emergency room physicians, and all they talk about is how they have holding for you know 48 hours these teens who come in. They can't get, um, can't get the rights to commit them because their parents won't agree or all sorts of other problems. Now, that's not what you deal with, But is that? Would you agree that that's the worst crisis right now, or do you think the there are mental health problems that you're talking about in your show with the outpatient and the insurance payments and the the treatment? Is that worse?
0: Oh man, Um, is that impossible to answer? It can be all the above to be honest. Um, You know, I think like when it comes down to um, outpatient like therapy, I think we've done a really good job of being what we call scientists practitioners, really looking at empirically validated treatments to kind of help people, um, especially with certain populations anxiety depression um we're we're starting i think where a lot of the crises are really i think arising is kind of like twofold i think affordability in the economics um provider supply side of it is one big thing but i also think it's from a treatment modality for more of these severe mental illnesses where really where i think the problem is and i mean being a doctor imagine if the best treatments you had were maybe 80% effective um you wouldn't feel very good about that. And I think that's the reality of where we're at, especially with addiction. It's all we keep talking about is the addiction problem. And between the modalities that we're using, I mean, if we're really looking at 12 steps um, programs, um, the traditional three to five day detoxes, residential treatment for the worst drugs. And the, the biggest problems we have with heroin and, and, and methamphetamine use, I mean, the relapse rates are 85, 90%. And it hasn't really gotten any better. Um, and even with AA, NA, 12-step programs, and it's it really only, I mean, even though they don't keep internal metrics of what works and what doesn't, you talk with anyone who's been in a 12-step group, and you're going to look around a room of 20 people, maybe four or five people have a sobriety of over a year or two. And, and that's where I look at how, you know, how can we even begin to tackle a problem when the modalities and treatments that we're using aren't really all that effective and haven't gotten any more effective? And then well,
1: that's very interesting because, you know, you look at the amount of money that's spent on, on these treatments. I mean, you mentioned in your show that there's some of them are, especially when you have the private ones, uh, they can be tens of thousands of dollars for an intensive treatment. And the, the, the relapse rate is like you said, it's what, almost 90%. It's,
0: yeah. Yeah. Especially for like meth, is like the worst and it's, and it, there's so, there's so many problems that we're, we're kind of running into, um, so, yeah. So when you're looking at the problem we have like with severe mental illness is that there's only really a couple different choices you have for like schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. You get mood stabilizers that people have for like for mood, like, mood instability, bipolar. And that doesn't even really I mean it works, but it makes people feel like crap. So we haven't really advanced anything for severe mental illness. And so once again, you have all these severe problems that seem to be growing. And then you start throwing in the problem of autism, where we don't have any treatments for that. Um, And not only do you have no treatments for that, you don't really have any treatment options unless you're extremely wealthy. So it's just, as an industry, we got a lot of problems and no one's willing to talk about it. I think, um, I don't know how many people I had on Twitter and LinkedIn messaging me and basically quietly telling me, Like they weren't liking my post (laughs) or anything, but then they were messaging me going, dude, you totally nailed it. I could not agree anymore. Um, That's where we're at uh, because a lot of people are working for the facilities. A lot of people are working for insurance companies. No one wants to come out and basically call a spade a spade. Even this hesitancy to call out our industry for basically sucking. Uh, (laughs) I have no shame in admitting going, our treatments suck. I mean, yeah, it's the best of what's around and, it's still better than nothing. How can we make our treatments better when we're kind of like patting ourselves on the back for for failing 85, 90% of the time and then charging more for it? And then we come up with like, oh, we have equine therapy. We, we're we doing art <laughs> therapy. We're going to do this. And it's like it's all variations of something that you're just adding money to. Yeah. And we're still not getting any better at it. I mean, it's just asinine to me. So uh,
1: why do you think that is? I mean, is it because that there's a, a third party payment or is it, I mean, I think on some level it's because we're very compassionate people by our nature. And so you do whatever you can, even though it may not be that effective, right? It's sort of like the person with terminal cancer. They're willing to do anything they can. If these, there's a, even if there's like a 0.1% chance of a cure rate, right? They're, they are they will to take a shot because they got nothing else to do and there's no other better options. I mean, what do you th- where do you think the problem lies? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, part of it is in the, the industry itself and in not being forthcoming, I guess, about the,
0: the, the rates of, you know, cure. You know, honestly, um, I think there's a, I, know, I think it's a lot of different things. I think first and foremost, you have to look at psychology. Um, we, we're kind of like the redheaded stepchild uh, not to offend any redheaded stepchild out right. there, but I'm
1: saying, right. I have the, a lot kind of the listeners head, Yeah, <laughs> We
0: are like the redheaded stepchild of the, you know, treatment, uh, you know, of health and wellness. Um, for so long, uh, we wanted to be taken seriously. I mean, the whole reason why we have a DSM manual, um, and this medical model of psychology is that we wanted to be taken seriously by the, the, the doctors, the medical industry. And so, Part of me feels as though it's kind of like we're we're just now starting to get to a point where people are taking us seriously and maybe looking at us as quasi equals, yeah, in the medical um, industry. Um, but and so I think if we were to sit there and basically say, yeah, so it, it took forever for you guys to actually you know look at us with respect, and then now we're going to admit that a lot of what we're doing uh, <laughs> doesn't work. Um, I think I think that's part of it. Um, I, I think another part of it is that even though it's not working. Um, if we were to admit that maybe it's not working, it would make people seek treatment out less. And so I think there's that hesitancy to, to acknowledge it um, for that very reason. And then I think three, it's almost like we don't really know what to do. Yeah. Um, if you really look at I me mean, as a doctor, you understand. I mean, the, the, the one area that we're really lagging behind is a neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And I think we're at a place where we're, you know, we're, you know, therapy and a lot of techniques is almost like trying to take advantage of neuroplasticity, but kind of like manipulating it from the outside. You can only get so well, you know, so much movement with it. Or as I say, some problems are hardware, like the brain, some, um, pro- um problems are like software, the coding, you know, mm-hmm. we, yeah. right. And I, I think it's just that we're, we're so far away. Like it's like, we've, we've grown really far, and maybe our understanding, like with autism, for instance, um, I remember, gosh, I started working with autistic children, about 2000 when I was an undergrad and my first year of grad school in 03, um, for psychopathology, I wrote, um, uh, writing a research paper on the, uh, their neurophysiology of, of autism. And back then you couldn't find a study that could isolate one part of the brain. Um, I mean, MRI study, CT study, I mean, I mean, you know autopsy studies really trying to get in there um and understand it, and we'll, we'll, you know maybe you have 10 patients having a large amygdala you have 10 patients that have a, a smaller uh, you have 10 yeah, right. that have a normal it was all over the place right but mm-hmm. then through you know as we've gotten more advanced with functional um imaging um now we've mapped the entire brain and what we've seen it's a whole brain dysfunction it's not just one part of the brain it's the entire brain they have three to four times more synaptic connections than people who aren't in the spectrum. They have far fewer mirror neurons um, in their brain. So it's like we have an understanding, but then what do we do with it? I don't know. Uh, At least we know, at least we know what's causing it, but we don't have a lot of good treatments for it. Just like with schizophrenia, we really kind of isolated it. It almost has a similar mechanism as Alzheimer's. It's not the amyloid protein buildup, but it's very similar kind of protein tangles in the brain. Mm -hmm. So we kind of know, all right, once again, we know there's a genetic component, but then we also kind of know, all right, from a neurophysiology, but then what do we do with it? Yeah. And that's a big problem that we're running into of, that's why I think we're stagnant, just like with addiction. We're stagnant because our understanding it only goes so far, I think.
1: Yeah. Or fun- fundamentally, you know, when you look at most functions within the body, you have a pretty good understanding for the, the biochemical uh, markers and the 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 functions and the way things work. Uh, when it comes to the brain, it is really just a complete black box. I mean, we know about the the structures that are there and present, but we don't know how they interact with each other. We don't know how learning forms. I mean, we can have ideas where it starts. We can have basic ideas of what functions of the brains brain does certain things based on people who have infarcts or parts of their brain that are no longer functioning. And you wonder and certainly things like autism and uh, dementia. A lot of these are, diseases are probably functions of multiple diseases, like they're 10 or 12 or so, but we don't have the sophistication to, to narrow them down to their own separate diagnoses, which mm-hmm. makes treatment really random. Uh, you know, you've, it works for, sometimes this works in al- Alzheimer's and sometimes it doesn't. Well, it could be entirely because there are three different types of, you know, variants of Alzheimer's disease. Likewise, it's probably the same in, in autism too, I would suspect.
0: You, know, you, you nailed it. I mean, heck, I mean, you got to look at them until like 10 years ago. Uh, we were calling it five different things. There was pervasive developmental disorder, <laughs> autism, Asperger's. Um, A lot of us even, there's a, there's a, it's called schizotypal. Um, uh, we, I mean, so like we had all these different names and now we're kind of realizing a lot of it is probably all one part of the same kind of syndrome, but yet you're absolutely right. Um, it, it could be a, a, a syndrome of multiple different things. And so I do think with quantum computing and AI, I think we're going to start getting, I think a lot better. With it it's just I think we're at a we're at a limit right now it's just like with weather uh, we have an idea of what's happening with the weather but it's just so much sheer data and knowledge and so much uh, the models uh, just you need that computing power and so I'm hoping we'll have some nice breakthroughs in the next 5 to 10 years but it's we're, we're a long you know, we're a long ways off and you know it was an interesting story um, I don't know if I told you this but um, this was oh gosh uh, maybe like, you know, almost, you know, five, six years ago. And, you know, when I was in practice with a partner of mine, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and, uh, we were, um, I was reading some studies, uh, done by Duke and they're doing, uh, in vivo neuro biofeedback basically with addiction. Mm-hmm. So what they were doing, they were hooking people up to a functional MRI and people that were in, um, in treatment. And so first they kind of mapped their brain, um, so uh, they kind of just did a, like a resting kind of scan. And then they had it where they purposely triggered them. They showed them pictures of, of, of images of that are associated with using. And then they had them start practicing the the skill sets like mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. and just cognitive therapies. And so then they hooked it up to like this little slider bar. And so, they, so in the moment, they were triggering them. And so if the brain was thinking that pattern that was more associated with addictive thinking of go to the left. It was more associated with healthy thinking was to the right. And so then they were literally actively using their brain and using their skills to keep it in that sober place. So it was almost like mental, exercise Mm -hmm. and i remember i wanted to do that my dad uh, was a chief resource (laughs) officer and he hooked us up with some people that would actually maybe be able to get us a cheaper functional mri
1: those exist
0: (laughs) yeah you know i mean it was actually nice it was like a hospital went out of business and it was like it was actually really good you know and i remember we were talking about it and i remember you know the doc that i was working with he goes you know what mike research is cool and all man but there's just no money in research yeah and that, you mentioned what's the financial business model that's contributing to it, and that's it right there. The universities are so locked into the research that they're doing, it almost doesn't even really apply to the real world. I mean, I think functional neuroimaging, yes, but there's this disconnect, I find. Um, that's one of the reasons why I left my PhD in my fifth year. I have like a, I always joke around, I have the most expensive master's degree of all time. <laughs> but one of the reasons I left is because we're not <laughs> applying any of this research you know, for being scientist practitioners, we're, we're doing a crap job. So, so academia isn't doing the greatest job of applying it to the real world. Uh, we have private practice and industry doesn't really make any money doing any research. You have people that are completely gaming, wealthy people like Daniel Amen and all these people like with chelation treatments and using functional neuroimaging with autism. It's like, And it's just, it's just, it's just a big, you know, what show basically. right? And it's a perfect combination of like nothing really improves. And it's just sad.
1: It's interesting because, you know, when you look at academia and uh, let's say the practice of whatever it is, and we'll just say in this case, um, clinical psychology, it, without a doubt, if you're, if, if you get far enough away from the actual practice, your ability to know what questions to answer are really limited. It makes it very challenging. Uh, you know, I see this in anesthesia. I think it's probably in every field that if you're not the one practicing much, you really don't even know what questions to ask and ones that are be what might be applicable. I mean, absolutely. If someone figured out the the solution, they make a gazillion dollars, right? Yeah. yeah. I, of course, you know, you got to try and figure out how to get there.
0: <laughs> well, and that's where I think it's really tough. Like, especially like in areas like like in, with autism, um, your parents are so desperate. for anything right and so then people are taking an advantage of it um and using technologies saying things making claims that really you can't prove it all um and and then it gives everything a bad name i mean hell i mean look at where we're at with anti-vaxxers um (laughs) utah i mean literally i I got into an argument with somebody online okay um i'm sorry to hear that (laughs) uh, yeah i mean it's so know i think it's like i try to stay engaged with people you know and so um Someone made this comment. I, I posted some research article, and then th- they made the comment like, "Well, oh my my ch- my daughter wasn't born with it, you know? She, you know?" I was like, "Oh, mother of God!" Yeah, right go. yeah. And so I was like, "All right, you know, I'm gonna engage this because these anti-vaxxers I haven't really had much interaction kind of with them." So I was like, "You know, all right, let's 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 see where this goes, right?" <laughs> so, I can tell you
1: where it's gonna go, but go ahead for your
0: story. <laughs> oh, you know, So the thing is, like, what's amazing um, is that they have no understanding of, of research methodology. So they're, they're reading abstracts and and grabbing onto like one thing. And so they, they use this uh, research, right. About this, uh, I can't remember the, the, that mercury. Yeah. Thimerosal. um, Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And so they're like, well, you know, look at this, you know, like it was a statistically significant increase when they used it versus didn't use it. Mm -hmm. And I go, yeah, but I go, let's look at the methodology and the research here. So, out of the it was like 7 million people, the n of 7 million, we had exactly 134 diagnosed with <laughs> with autism versus um it was like it was like like 76 or something right. um uh, with the control I go. I go if that was causing it, 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 w- it wouldn't be .001 percent occurrence. It would be like one to one. Yeah, and, and people don't understand that. And literally, when I'm going, I've studied. I have been studying this longer than your daughter has been alive. I have multiple degrees, um, and you're telling me I'm wrong. I go, there's something inherently wrong with that. Um, you know what? Um, this person's answer was, well, I'm, um, I'm, uh, well, I'm in medical school. Oh. One that they weren't medical school. That's I, I they're premed. And I go, and so you no, know, my response was, I go, well, I look forward to reading your research. You know my email address. You know my Facebook and my Twitter. Um, I want you to forward over your um, your research um, paper when you write it, and I look forward to having you on my show. And that's where I ended it.
1: Totally unimportant, but important thing statistically. If you get a sample size large enough, you can prove about anything. Statistic, oh, but yeah, but it will be statistically insignificant and and useless information oftentimes. So.
0: Uh, And that's the problem with mental health is that this is the type of stuff that's going on out there. And so how can we possibly have a discussion about what we need to do differently and better when we have so much crap going on out there? um, So much misinformation, uh, so much skewed information, um, you know, um, but then, but here's where it gets interesting though. You know, when we look at uh, treatments and, 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 you know, where we we should be going, um, you know, it's interesting. Like in in London, they were doing uh, research with psilocybin uh, mushrooms, magic uh, hallucinogenic mm-hmm. mushrooms, um, and so they they took a clinical population. There are people who are floridly suicidal, like people have basically been um, hospitalized for years um, uh, because of just you know awful, horrible, persistent depression. Yeah, and literally within, I think it was like. I think a day or two of receiving treatment, um, all their suicidality was gone um, They, for the very first times in their lives were being happier. They had different insights into things. And even, I think it was even like six months after they used it, um, there was a, a huge, it was like 60 or 70% reported lasting changes. Um, and so there's been this big, you know, push lately um, to maybe start looking at this and you know why they're making that big push now. Uh, The pharmaceutical companies have identified what the accesses are. They believe uh, with mushrooms it's glutamate. And so mysteriously, what do you think all the next class of antidepressants is going to be? Yeah, right. And so it's interesting how all of a sudden, mysteriously, they're taking some of these other things serious now that they know they can make some money on it.
1: Well, I mean, I guess ultimately it doesn't matter as long as people are getting better. But it is it's just like we're talking about the autism. I mean, as soon as you get close to a cure, well, then everyone's going to jump on board because they're trying to get their their treatment or their uh, you know their modality or their medication out there because you know that's where the money is, right? When you actually have something tangible. When it, when it comes to this, the mental health, issue, you know, there are always these complaints about not enough access to mental health, and I feel like it's they're generally talking. We say they; it's the general, you know, the public or the people on TV or you know the health health policy wonks or legislators uh and they always say well there aren't enough beds there's not enough you know they're not enough personnel i feel like the same thing is said in medicine too when i think there's no shortage of i mean facilities and and things that are available to people they're just not utilized properly is it sort of the same in mental health i mean it's, are the is there stuff there or it's just used improperly or the people who like not locked up, but you know, like in put in inpatient situations for far longer than they should be.
0: So it, it all depends on how much money you have Eric. Uh, th- that's the, that's the reality is it all is depending on how much money you have. If you are wealthy, uh, you can find a 45 to 60 day, um, uh, residential treatment program. No questions asked. Um, uh, you can get, you know, relatively decent, you know, treatment. Um, I mean the best that you know, it's going to get, um, So if you have money, yeah, if you don't have money, that's where you start running into problems. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, let's say you want to use insurance uh, for uh, treatment. So the insurance companies realize that, okay, so we're losing money when people have to keep going to the ER for overdoses. Um, Because typically when they're looking at uh, a lot of the treatments, it's, all right, let's see if we can get them in three to five days and detox them and then we'll put them in IOP. Now mind you, that three to five day detox, you're not going to see any therapist. You're going to do basically group therapy, which is basically AA. Um, and you maybe will see a psychiatrist a couple times. Um, and then they'll uh, they'll release you off to an IOP program. Um, then if you keep messing up, then the insurance comes around. Ah, crap. Now we're losing lots of money because three to five days, three to five days. So what can we get away with? Well, we don't want to pay for 45. We don't want to pay for 60. Um, the research clearly shows 45 days is like the the length of residential treatment where it starts being really effective. 60 is perfect. Um, I mean, anything more than that is awesome, but yeah, you have to be rich to afford yeah, that. Right. So they go, um, all right, let's do 30 days. No one it says 30 days is, is <laughs> it's even good, but they go, all right, what's the minimum that we're willing to pay? We'll fund research that Shows that thirty works, and so they settle at that. You have to go through so many hoops just to get that. You have to fail at so many lower levels of mm-hmm. care. Now, here's where the kicker comes in. If you have chronic, long-term mental, like mental illness, not chemical dependency, this is where your SOL. Yeah, um, you get three to five day med stabilization. So schizophrenia, bipolar, the, they'll stabilize you with meds once again. Same, same deal. Um, won't see a counselor. Uh, we'll do group, and they'll just kind of med you up um, charge you about 10, 15 grand and then release you to the wild. And then maybe you'll get an outpatient provider where the same basic thing that got you in there to begin with will happen again. Uh, you want to do long-term residential treatment. You ain't going to have insurance paying for it. There's literally no such thing really (laughs) as long-term residential mental health treatment. Unless you're rich, then you're good. If you're good, you got that. Um, so it, it, when you're talking about the, what's the access to care, there. I mean, it's it's once again it's tiered. Yeah, and, I mean, you could be like state sponsored. Um, you know, there's a state mental hospitals, but I mean, it's you not know, want to go there. but yeah, um, you'd expect really, to yeah. really, really bad shape to get into a state mental hospital.
1: Do Do you think insurance is the way to to practice? I mean, I don't know in, what you do in your practice, uh, your private practice, but I mean, is insurance the right model for for treating no. mental health?
0: No, um, I don't take insurance because one, um, they don't pay me anything, so I charge you know, 150. <laughs> bucks good an hour. I mean, yeah, dude, I charge 150 bucks an hour. They'll charge me 50, and then literally they're going to make me jump through every hoop. I got to do my notes a certain way. Yep. Um, um, I got to call them and do pre-authorizations. It's a big pain in the butt, and even then, they'll kind of give you hassles with, with your check, right? Um, so that's why with me, I do out-of-network billing forms, and I do a sliding scale. So, um. It's one of those things you know um you know for full rate great awesome if not you know, I'll have a sliding scale between 50 and 130 and i'll work with you as much as i can um so uh that you know so i try to really work with people um it's just the insurance model with mental health is just so flawed on so many levels and then everyone's trying to game everybody yeah the i mean the i mean literally I remember the games that we would play to get things approved. I remember oh, one yeah. time. Yeah, we had a, um, you know, because with with uh, with opiate uh, addiction, you don't have to get them detoxed. Um, it sucks. You're not going to die unless you have like a heart condition or strokes. You'd play mm-hmm. these games of, all right, so what can we do here? Because um, literally I would walk into that, my shift and in intake uh, when I was an intern and you'd have the intake, director of intake going, all right, well, we have uh, eight beds open. we got to fill this up. <laughs> so right off the bat, you're kind of going, all right, well, we got to fill these beds up, right? And so literally there was one day where um, uh, the the director was sitting there and just kind of like badgering us. What are you guys going to do? And now mind you, the, this director wasn't a clinician. They were just a business person. Yeah. And I remember I had a Sharpie in my hand, and I was at the board. I chopped it across the room and walked out. <laughs> I literally – and, and I was just like, what am I uh, – I was like, there's no like, it's not like uh, my wife is a nurse it was a stop the line or hold the line where you can basically clear safe harbor we don't have that in our field yeah so i walked back in there and just kind of started getting back to work and literally it was like well okay so yeah they're they're detoxing from opiates and then they're going okay well they have a heart condition they have high blood pressure because that would then make criteria where they need to be medically Mm -hmm. detoxed right or it will be well if they say if they don't get treatment, they'll commit suicide. Well, now it's both now CD and mental health. Now we can get them in. Um, and so those are the games that they would play. And then the insurance companies are going, well, we don't want to approve that. Um, you know, why don't you guys try doing this? It's like, dude, they literally tried committing suicide like three days ago. And you're (laughs) saying that they're fine. Well, you know, they're not showing any active symptoms. I go, they were literally in the hospital three days ago from trying to take a bunch of Tylenol. Like Like, would you be okay three days later after that um i've had hangovers that last longer than three days um so i mean that's the game and who's that fall i don't know they're all trying to game each other so i think they're all just trying to make a buck and try to keep each other in line but it's if if people weren't trying to profiteer so much off of it i think maybe that would maybe make the model a little bit better but it's just, God, it's just really messed up, man. It really, really is. And it's sad because I love this industry. I've made my living in it. I believe a lot in what we're doing. It's just tough when there's so much fraud, so much waste, so much profiteering, and it's just it's just wrong. It really, really is.
1: Well, it's not any different medicine. I mean, I think fu- fundamentally it's the same, right? You have consu- the consumers, the patient, who wants everything they possibly can get, and they work as hard as they can to get as much as they can. I mean, they don't try to be sick, but you know, you would. You're going to want the best of everything if you can, if it doesn't cost you anything. The people who are selling to you are more than happy to give you all that stuff. It's a person in the middle who's, whose whose payment is like, whoa, I'm not going to pay anything, right? And so you have these all these battles going on where you don't have any sort of. No one recognizes the true scarcity of of the situation, and so it sounds like it's no different for you guys. <laughs> it's kind of it really,
0: you know, it really isn't. I mean, and the thing is, it's like you need you need a a free market kind of system to push innovation and and i think we see it a lot more on the medical side but i think the, there isn't any motive there's no motivation for innovation because this might sound awful i um, mean this might not be true i mean i can't you know i'm not sitting at this board meetings but there's almost a part of me going it works against their, their, their bottom line to make things better. It almost, when you have a revolving door of people constantly coming in, it, it, it almost is better for business to keep it this way. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense that to basically call your, yourself out and your industry and, and then also then invest money to innovate it. Um, that's what it almost seems like. And then academia, I think is isn't doing their job at all. Um, I mean, you know what it's like in grant dollars, how hard it is. You just see some of the research that's coming out. It's like Captain Obvious research. It's like, why do you have to do research on that? I could have told you that without even doing the research.
1: Well, I mean, you know, when you look look at throughout history and you look at new innovations and disruptions in markets, it never comes from people who are within the market, who are market leaders. It's always going to be the upstart, the person on the outside, the person who can't get access to things, who has an idea or some sort of, you know, whatever innovation that totally transforms the market and at that point it doesn't matter what the market does because it'll lose right i mean that outside of trying to legislate from a licensing standpoint or something like that they cannot stop those things from those innovations from coming because you know especially when you have such poor poor success rates as you mentioned in some of your treatment programs within mental health i mean if you had something that was effective half the time that'd be revolutionary right
0: Oh, without a doubt, um, and it, it would be so revolutionary, and and I think, and I think you know, you nailed it yourself. It's going to be something outside, like outside factors that are going to disrupt it. But I think where I, where I think the mental health industry, I think is a, is maybe it's a different conceptualization of an outside disrupting factor because if we're really being honest, I mean, with the exception of like autism. Um, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, you know, where it's structural genetics, right? Sure. Um, I, You know, I think the reality is, is that m- the majority of the mental health problems I think we're seeing is really more the downstream, you know, collateral damage effect of just society in and of itself. And mm-hmm. that's the reason why a lot of these things aren't working is because we're we're, you know, I've always, made the analogy of, I feel like I am treating soldiers for PTSD where basically after we're done with the session, they go right back out in the battle after I'm done with them. <laughs> and that basically my job is to make their Kevlar, their emotional Kevlar better. But that's to me, the, the dirty secret that no one really wants to admit is that it, it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a symptom of society. I mean, if you really look at addiction, um, uh, you know, there's a reason why, you know, the people that have been most persecuted, um, gener- you know, uh, certain, you know, cultures of people that the, the addiction is higher in some than others. And so it, it, a lot of us have really kind of looked at addiction as a, it's almost like a coping strategy to deal with an environment they can't change. Depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's a downstream effect, I think, of the world that we've created. I mean, we, we've trained kids to be... Uh, consumers from the time they're two years old to make it to where you need to buy something to feel different and better. And and then we we wonder from a neuroplasticity perspective, that's going to affect their development to where nothing is going to make them happy. They're always looking for that next external hit of dopamine and norepinephrine to make them feel better. And I think that's the sad truth that no one really wants to admit. Um, And I think and and we're looking at what's going to change. It's going to take, I think people waking up going, listen, like maybe we need to change a little bit about what we do and how we do it. Um, can't be a, a sudden change. It can't be a, this huge fast change because I mean, so much would have to change, but I think it begins with us maybe acknowledging the obvious yeah. that, you know, right. um, and, and maybe it's a little controversial to say that, but I, I know it to me, if you look at like Occam's razor, you know, you know, Sometimes the most you know simple solution is the most likely, and that to me it seems like the most likely solution or likely explanation.
1: Well, the first thing is you have to recognize the problem, right? Is, it, is
0: that absolutely, say, yeah. right? and that's <laughs> half the battle. Uh, imagine society. I, I literally like my the one of the you know you and I were talking uh, before the show about getting into radio and what made me do it. The the, the biggest reason I actually maybe go into radio is when my second book I was working on. I wanted to call it. Uh, collateral damage rolls around the idea of we, the people, we, the problem. And, um, you know, my, my agent wasn't very enthusiastic about it. We weren't getting much from any publishers and I kind of asked her, I go, this is, I think the best proposal I've written this is going to be one of those books where I think this is me, something that makes me, she goes, listen, Michael, you know, what you're saying is kind of, what you're saying is true. I'm not doubting that, but who the hell is going to want to read that? who's going to want to read it? Hey, we're the problem society. We got to change. Right, and right. pretty much every problem that we're, we're complaining about. Um, yeah. Uh, Michael, who's going to want to, who's going to want to buy that book. And if no one wants to buy it, no one's going to want to publish it. Yeah. And, and I was dejected almost. like, <laughs> like, Oh, all right. So what do I do with this? And that's when I was like, you know what, maybe podcasting and radio is the, is the modality to get out there and do it. So yeah, but that that's kind of what brought me into it, actually.
1: The end run around the the gatekeepers. So <laughs> one, one final question for you. Yeah. Um. Now, how? Well, maybe two. So the first one. Is, how long have you been in practice again?
0: Uh. So I've been uh, I've been licensed for oh gosh eleven years. Eleven God. years. Yeah. Start seeing clients in uh o three o four in grad school. Um. But actual post licensure. Yeah. 11 okay. Years.
1: So so you've been treating treating people for a number of years now how have the problems changed in your practice since you started i mean have you noticed have you noticed a, a different sort of different sort of issues that are causing people to come in and get seen i mean you think expect in 10 years it actually wouldn't change much but i suspect that's not the case
0: you know that's a actually a really good question i i try I really and ask good have... questions so good Oh yeah I man that's an awesome question um you know, it, it, all right. So there has been a couple changes. One, um, I don't think I have any problem throwing out there. Other one, I have to be careful how I craft it. Um, <laughs> so I think number one, um, the biggest, I think, shift that I've seen with anxiety and depression, especially on like college kids um, and, and adolescents, is there's a lot of very intelligent kids out there. I'm talking really intelligent and they have a worldview. Um, they they kind of see things for what it is. I had a client the other day go, you have an idea what it's like being 14. And you see a bunch of people your age all doing stuff where you almost feel like you're watching planet Earth. Hey, look at the bird puffing its feather up to get the mate look cool. You know? Yeah. And he goes, you see it for what it is, but then you also have then the reality of, okay, but I don't want to go through the next four years, not having any friends. So what mm-hmm. do I do with that? Or, looking at their parents and their families and the people around them going, so you're telling me I need to go to school, uh, do all these things to make money and make a living, but yet you guys are miserable. You're in debt. You're, <laughs> um, you're you're divorced. You guys hate each other. Um, so why is it that I want to do this again? And, and kids are verbalizing, whereas before I think I more thought it, but they didn't have the words to describe it. Now kids are black and white. Like, yes, like I had a kid today where, it's kind of what I suspect, suspect and I and I don't, I don't like to lead them at all. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, you know, carefully craft some of my questions. And when I interpreted what he said, and and it maybe put a little more panache on it, his eyes lit up. It was like somebody finally understood. And it, it's it, it's heartbreaking almost to see so many kids struggling through that. And so I think that's one big change that I've seen, which once again reiterates that viewpoint I have about society being a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, second one is, you know, this is the one where, you know, I always try to figure out a word. It. Um, but you can always edit it out afterwards, but I don't think I'm going to say anything bad, but the male identity is non-existent anymore. Um, that's one of the things I've seen with, you know, with my, my male clients, especially the adolescents now, um, have really no coping strategies, no uh, emotional uh, fortitude or ego strength, as we call it. Um, no real um, identity really. Uh, Cause, and, and that's something I see. It's very detrimental to young men where the, the male identity is just almost been, uh, it'll, it's been so, you know, like that, what they call it, ta- toxic masculine. Disparaged. Um, yeah. You know, and you know, and it's, it's tough because i think men are really struggling especially young men are really struggling to figure out what what their identity is and what is okay um you know the very same things like with my young my young daughter we're trying to build up in her almost seems the very things they're trying to vilify and men and and as a result whereas in the past i saw you know whenever you always hear the you know, i what movie was it? Oh, we got stage five cleaner. Oh, It was uh, wedding crashers where it's like, <laughs> Oh, I'm trying to break up with this girl and they won't stop calling me. Now it's the opposite. Women are, are bad at it. Well, I don't know if I can swear, but, um, women are, are, are awesome right now. I mean, they totally are, are strong and, and hungry and they're not taking crap from anyone, which is exactly the way it should be. But our young men are struggling and they're, they're not doing well. Um, and, and I worry about that and I worry about the most is because the very things that we would want to tell them to kind of like make them stronger, it's almost like it's almost wrong they're not allowed to have that. And, and, and as a clinician, I even struggle with how to balance out society, my own views and values and where things are heading. So, but that's a very disconcerting thing that you, I think a lot of people aren't talking about. And I think one of the big reasons why we're not talking about it is there's a reason, put it this way, most programs in and, and, and psychology um, are going to be about, at least when I was going to school, it was like two, it was like two thirds females. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of the research and a lot of this stuff coming out um, is, you know, I think maybe the male identity has has taken a hit at the expense i think of the feminine identity which once again females have earned the right to empower themselves like they absolutely should i just worry that the, as a, it's almost like at, it, it, it's come at the expense of the male identity and i think we need to have a a course correction back to the center for men women you guys keep doing everything you're doing let's <laughs> get i want y'all to be back but men we got to figure out what we can do and how to have a discussion about male identity without coming across as misogynistic or, or wrong. Uh, so those are the two biggest shifts I've, I've seen. And then I think the third one is just more instances of autism, um, Mm -hmm. um, and addiction, uh, addiction, just running rampant with everyone, drugs, harder drugs, starting earlier and earlier drug use starting earlier and earlier. That's a, a big one. Um, bullying has always been there and bad. It's just been maybe, um, uh, magnified by social media, making it, you know, a little bit more um, can't escape it pretty much.
1: Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. That especially the second point there. It's one I'd never, I'd never thought about. Uh, so that's someone to kind of chew about it and ponder for a bit, I suppose. Well, our time is up and I really appreciate you spending the time with me to go over the mental health industry and how it's, it makes me feel a little better that I'm not only the only one that's kind of messed up, messed up industry. So it's nice that you're just as bad as the healthcare industry. So congratulations.
0: <laughs> Are we part of the club now? Is you're that, part of the is club. That our official. You might be like...
1: worse. I mean, it's funny because you did mention early on. You said, you know, you'd be. Uh, if, can you imagine medicine if there's eighty percent? Treatment is only eighty percent effective. I thought, boy, I bet an oncologist would kill for that sort of effectiveness. <laughs> um, but I anyway, think it's awesome, though, man.
0: I, uh, I think it's great that. You know we're having this conversation because I think, you know, for far too long I think our 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 disciplines have been almost at odds I think with each other, Um, and I think we're finally starting to get over that hump of we we're all respecting one another, Um, and and I think it's good that we're having this conversation because I think we have a we're going to accomplish a lot more together, I think um, especially with the. Uh, with drug addiction problems because it's the it's the Venn diagram of the overlap between the mental health and in the in the medical. And so uh, I think we just more of us need to be having this conversation, I think.
1: Boy, I feel like I need to just reach across and give you a virtual hug, but then that'd be we can't we'll, we'll, my male we'll identity. We'll so I don't know <laughs> um, Well, Mr. Divine, where's a good place for people to follow more of your stuff besides going subscribing to Gray Matters radio?
0: Uh, so a couple of places. So you can get us at uh, graymattersradio.org. Uh, uh, it's our website. It has all the blogs and articles on there. You can get us on Twitter, Gray Matters Radio, but it's RDIO, uh, Facebook at Gray Matters Radio. Um, you can also get me on my more counseling website, uh, michaeldivinecounseling.com, so you can uh, see who I am as a counselor, not just the radio. Uh, personality and then on uh, you can get me so Grey Matters Radio It's uh, we're always on Mondays um, airing our podcast and you can also catch me on the voice of the radical center on top 1370 um, and on pretty much radio.com pretty much everywhere on live Sundays at 2 to 3 o'clock central time 3 to 4 eastern time
1: well thank you so much and have a great evening
0: absolutely thank you so much for having me on man It's, uh, it's real as always my pleasure Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.